So this morning we'll transition to chapter three and our study through Deity and Decree by Samuel Renahan. I'm sorry, chapter eight. I think I said chapter three. Chapter eight, which discusses the creature's communion with the triune God. The creature's communion with the triune God. This will be part one and then part two will be next week. And so our our Sunday school class has been adapted uh, from that book for our thinking together, for our discussion um, as we walk through um, a subject as um, deep as the doctrine of God. Um, What is God? Who is God? Um, We'll continue that that um, discussion. And we've, we've been using that book as our guideline through it. And so this morning, we want to think about our salvation and our triune God and our communion and our triune God. <clears throat> so in chapter two of the 1689 confession, you should have known I would start there. All right, Brian, always got it. <laughs> uh, paragraph three says that the doctrine or truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence on him. Communion with God and dependence on him. That's the, uh, the latter half of paragraph three there in chapter two. When we think about the Trinity, it's for doctrine. We should, all, we should think about it and want to know God more, but it's also for devotion. It's for doctrine and devotion. We want to think about We want to think God's thoughts after him, so to speak. We want to use the language he gives us when we talk about him and think about him. But we also want to worship God as he is. So we want to have right thoughts about God because that's a part of worship. How we think about God is is worship. We want to use the language scripture uses as we think about God and talk about him because God gives us that language. And all of this is unto God's worship. This God who is the one holy and triune God. Edward Lay was an English Puritan and theologian in the 16th century. And he wrote about how the Christian can be comforted by the life of God. He said, this comforts all God's people. The life of God, he says, comforts all God's people who have the living God for their friend who liveth forever and shall live eternally with him. The life of God comforted Job. And chapter 19, verse 25, let them trust in the living God. This should comfort against all spiritual weaknesses, against deadnesses. Though we be dull and and dead in prayer, God is life and he will quicken us. And so he points to the life of God, the ever living one, the everlasting one, the one who has no beginning, has no end. And he says, when the Christian feels dull in spirit, when he feels dead at heart, when he feels weak, um, he is weak and he does get dull and he does feel uh, dead in spirit at times. Not, you know, not spiritually dead like, as an unbeliever, but he feels, he feels a sense of, of, of hardness at times. He says he can look to God who is life and find in him comfort. He can look to God who holds his life and find in him comfort. And we've talked about the deep things of God during this class, uh, as as Kyle and I have been trying to work through this class. It's it's been heavy stuff. 
But we try to think about the doctrine of God with the church. And we've done that by reading um, older documents that the church has produced about the doctrine of God. That's a way that we can think with the church about, about God. Um, again, these are deep things. But the Trinity is also something that a child can grasp and is meant to, to grasp. Their faith can be strengthened by the doctrine of our triune God. Now, I think about the Baptist Catechism, uh, question nine in the Baptist Catechism. It says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And if you have your hand out there, we'll read the answer together. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Now, that's the the Baptist Catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism for Children has a similar question. Um, This is the one I've used with with, um, uh, our kids since they were two, since Caden was around two, I think, and walking through these questions. So it's a more condensed version of what we see there in the Baptist Catechism. And it says in question seven, and how many persons does this one God exist? In three persons. And this has been, you'll be surprised uh, about what children can retain and understand and even regurgitate back to you, these, these weighty things. And when they have, I mean, even to this day, um, our, our, our children will ask a question about, about God and will say, remember what the catechism said. Um, you know, does God have a, a beard like you, daddy? Does, does, does God live here or there? Um, we'll say, remember the catechism. <clears throat> what does it say? What is God? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Right, so well, he doesn't have, a, doesn't have a beard or you know, red hair, but he's, he's a spirit. Um, and even questions about the Trinity, we can point back to the catechism. We want to help them to understand who the Holy Spirit is and who Jesus is and who, and who the Father is. <clears throat> First Timothy 6.16 It says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Yet we know that God has revealed himself so that even a child can understand. Salvation and the eternal life of any man, woman or child depends on a knowledge of the Trinity. It depends on a knowledge of the Trinity. It is impossible for a sinner to be reconciled to God apart from the Trinity. Now, a statement like that could make you question, right? Saving faith depends on a knowledge of the Trinity. Now, throughout this class, we've learned more about God. I've learned more about God in teaching this class and thinking through it with you about God and the Trinity. And And you can say, well, I'm growing in my knowledge of the Trinity. Does that mean I should have been doubting my salvation? If we, we, you're going to say that salvation depends on a knowledge of the Trinity. Um, does that mean I should have been doubting if I don't fully understand the Trinity? Um, am, I, am I truly saved? <clears throat> the Athanasian Creed is an ancient document of the church. It explains what the church believes and confesses about the Trinity and about the two natures of Christ. And it says this, <clears throat> anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. 
when the early church made statements like this, it doesn't mean that in order for someone to be saved, they have to have a perfect knowledge of God, but a true knowledge of God. Right? We, 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 we talk about God being incomprehensible. We can never put our arms around God and say, I understand him. So we don't want to read statements like this. And here it's saying, well, if you don't, if you can't put your arms around God, around the Trinity, then you're not a believer. No, um, even these early documents in the church, they wanted to make clear that this, it's not saying that our knowledge is perfect, but our knowledge is true. And true means what has the scriptures told us about God? Do we believe that? Um, not do we always fully understand it, but do we believe it, right? Um, so there's a, there's a faith element there as we grope to understand and know God. <clears throat> Again, this is why the early church in dealing with false teachers deemed them heretics. Those teachings didn't proclaim true salvation, but they actually opposed it, and therefore they were not Christian. Um, and so the early church, when it uh, outlined doctrines of the Trinity or of God, when it would hear a statement or a confession by a certain um, uh, uh, a person and maybe a, a following, and they would say, okay, well, this doesn't line with, uh, align with what the scriptures say about God. Um, and if there was opposition and if the the opponent was obstinate and did not want to move or budge they would say because of what you are teaching and believe because it's not consistent with what god says about himself they would deem them heretics formally and put them out of the church or not recognize them as the true church of christ not a perfect knowledge but a true knowledge do we believe what god says about himself our true communion with God starts with salvation. And salvation begins with the true knowledge of God by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so uh, John 17, 3, you should have that in your handout there in front of you. Let me have someone read John 17, 3 for us. I think you have that at least. Is it there? Okay. Um, let me have someone go to, go to John 17, 3. And then, yeah, we'll pick up at 14, 16 after. So John, John 17, 3. Got it, Mike? All right, go for it. Uh, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay. Eternal life is to know the only true God. To know God who is, who is truth and to know him in truth. <clears throat> We will never, as I mentioned before and have mentioned in past classes, we will never know God perfectly in this life, right? Our, our fallen nature um, prevents us from knowing and understanding God perfectly. And even with glorified bodies, we won't know God perfectly, but we'll grow even then in a, in a knowledge of, of Christ, right? Um, but we can know God truly. Any believer, man, woman, or child who believes the gospel and understands it, they have a truer knowledge of God than any um, self-proclaimed, self-entitled theologian who has a false knowledge of God. So a child can say, Jesus is Lord as a believer and confess that truth about God and have a truer knowledge than any, any Pharisee that we see in the scriptures who denied who Christ was. 
right? It's not, it's not, it's not perfect knowledge, but it's true knowledge. As we consider uh, John 1.18, it's a Trinitarian statement where it says, no one has ever seen God, <coughs> excuse me, ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Um, it's impossible to know the Father without the Son. The Son, uh, Hebrews 1.3 says, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then uh, John 14, 16, let me have someone read that for us. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right, so that's a very clear and emphatic statement. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, which um, informs and helps us even when we think about conversations we have with with other people when there are these ideas that, well, everyone um, has a, a right relationship with God. God loves everyone. Everyone will get to heaven by just practicing what they feel to be right. And God will, 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 will honor that and he'll let them into heaven. Right? You hear this in, I mean, in, in the music of, of our culture and time. Um, and in movies, in media, and ads, it's pretty much everybody do what's right in your own eyes. And the more sincere you are, the better your chances are of getting to heaven because God will never turn away sincerity. But sincerity that denies what scripture says is actually not sincerity at all. It's a, it, it's, it's a veil. It's actually pride because it says, I know better than God how to get to God. And that's, that's pride. That's, that's not truth. That's not knowledge according to the scriptures. You see the Pharisees doing the same type of things. But Jesus says clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which is why the Christian, even as they have these conversations with unbelievers, can do it with a sense of gratefulness and thankfulness and humility because they didn't come to the Father themselves. But even they came through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So we can keep that, that um, humble heart disposition. You know An interesting tidbit about my last name is actually the way. So I've hmm. used that. I've used my own name, especially when I was in Quebec. Yeah. And to witness the people and say, well, my name is in the scriptures. And they go, what? And then I go, yeah, it's so here I am the way. So that's why it would be Hopefully they don't confuse that. <laughs> Lavoie, the way. Ah, nice. Didn't know that. I learned something new about you. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so John fourteen sixteen, uh, John seventeen three, John one eighteen. All sort of could be summarized by saying this: If we reject the Son, we reject the Father. It is impossible to reject the Son without also rejecting the Father. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that make that even more, more plain for us. First John 2.23. Let me have someone read that for us. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay. <clears throat> you see this, <coughs> excuse me, not only here, but even other places in the New Testament, or even the Pharisees in conversations with 
with, with Jesus denied his, his divinity um, and took, took shots at his, his origin. Who is your father? Um, yet the whole time thinking they, because they had Abraham as their father, they had a relationship with God. Um, Christ rejects that. And scripture rejects that and says, no one who denies the son has the father. Uh, John 5, 23. Let me have someone read that for us. Okay, another clear statement that if you reject the son, you reject the father. Another uh, helpful scripture to have in mind in conversations, I think specifically about um, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses to, to show that um, the son ought to be honored as, as the father um, because the son is God, the father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And then 1 John 5.20, let me have someone read that for us. And we know that the son of God is Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Right? This this language, this is this is alpha and omega language. Right? No beginning, no end. He has life in himself, therefore he can give life to whom he chooses. Right? <clears throat> All this shows shows us that the Son uh, is God, right? Um, and that our God is is triune. Because if this is if Jesus is not God, then the Bible itself is making a blasphemous statement about the worship of God, right? So God says, I will have no other gods before me. He's cutting down any other supposed God, right? Here it says Jesus Christ, he's God um, and has eternal life. The scripture affirms that Jesus Christ is God and ought to be worshiped as God. Um, the next point there, it is impossible to belong to Christ without receiving the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to belong to Christ without receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll say on the front end of this, when we think about receiving the Holy Spirit, depending on your church tradition or theological tradition, we can read receiving the Holy Spirit as that sort of second blessing interpretation. Right? You're saved, but then you receive the second blessing of the Holy Spirit with the evidence for speaking in tongues. And we, we, we've talked about that in past classes and specifically our last um, Sunday school term on the Holy Spirit, we talked about that, right? Um, but this is saying uh, the Spirit is the one through whom we even come to believe. We cannot believe apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We can't will ourselves to believe on God. Romans 8, 9, let me have someone read that for us. All right, so one must have the spirit of Christ in order to even belong to Christ. The spirit of God dwells <coughs> in you, the scripture says. So in order for us, again, to believe, uh, to, to hear, to have our hearts change, that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot say... So we talked about in the past that the spirit is just um, a force or an external expression 
of God, right? The Spirit is God. The Spirit is the one through whom we are granted and sealed in eternal life. I'm going to read another verse that just came to mind. It's in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So how was the Christian kept even now? What keeps you from abandoning the gospel? What keeps you believing the gospel? What keeps you from saying, um, I, I, I want nothing to do with God and the gospel and forsaking your creator? The scripture says the spirit has sealed you, right? That doesn't mean that it's some sort of uh, invisible protective armor. It means that as first Peter says, your salvation is kept guarded for you in heaven, right? It is the spirit that applies to us the benefits of what Christ has purchased for us. It is by the spirit that the, that the Christian says no to sin. It is by the spirit that any Christian has any victory over any sin. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is God, not just an eternal, external force or an expression of God, but who is God. John um, 14, 17. Let me have someone read that for us. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay. So Christ's uh, promise of, of a helper has come and dwells, dwells in us. Um, it's by the spirit that the church was created, right? Um, as, as a temple of God. We think about the Old Testament motif of the spirit dwelling in the temple of God and the tabernacle of God. That same language is used in the New Testament to talk about Believers who are being built up, Ephesians 4, into the temple of God. That's intentional language to talk about the presence of the Spirit and the life of the believer, not merely individually, but as a church, right? So the Spirit's preserving work even through, through the church. Now, transitioning in our class here um, to our worship of the triune God. Our worship of the triune God. So we talked about our salvation in the triune God. Now let's think about worship. <clears throat> As Christians, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. But we also pray to each person of the Trinity because the three persons are one God, worthy of worship and praise and petition. Now we talked about, like, you know, in past classes, how that can be sort of triggering. You sort of feel a tension there. Um, is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit? Uh, I understand praying to the Father. What about prayer to the Son? Um, and then prayer, prayer to the Holy Spirit can maybe be the one that's, that's most, uh, that you feel the most tension about. But we can pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, and we pray, as, as we pray to God, uh, one God and eternally exists in three persons. Uh, in his book on the Holy Spirit, 
Sinclair Ferguson said, you might remember this from our past Sunday school term. He said, the whole of the Christian life with its deep roots and the love of the Father and its foundation and the grace of Christ is characterized by what Paul called the koinonia, that's the, the, the Greek word used there, or fellowship of the Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Our intercession is by the Holy Spirit. We intercede through the Holy Spirit who applies the resurrection life of Christ to our account and we intercede by the Holy Spirit who is the basis of our union with Christ. But we also pray to the Holy Spirit as God. John Calvin says that the legitimate prayer that, or he said that legitimate prayer is prayer that is uh, committing oneself to holding on to the promises of God until they take effect. When we pray uh, by the Holy Spirit, we're praying the promises of God back to God, the Holy Spirit. When we pray the language of scripture given to us by the Spirit of God, his words back to him as the only true God who is able to answer. And I want to highlight the spirit in our worship here because I think at times we can limit our worship to the Father and the Son and not consider that the Spirit is God and ought to be worshiped and adored and prayed to with petition, right? If we deny the Spirit worship and adoration, then what we're worshiping is not God because our God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and ought to be worshiped as such. Saint uh, Anselm of Canterbury. So this is a, a, he lived during the 11th century. Um, you'll notice in my classes, I like, to, I like to go back in church history. I think it's beneficial for us to think with the church in that way. Um, Anselm of Canterbury, he was an Italian philosopher and theologian. He wrote a book called Why God Became Man. It's excellent. He's also known for his ontological argument for the existence of God. It's a big word, but in that argument, he says that God is a being than which none greater can be imagined. Uh, Anselm also wrote prayers. And one of the prayers he wrote, or one of the prayers attributed to Anselm, at least, is a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what he says here. He says, O Holy Counselor, the sweetest consolation of the sorrowful. Gracious spirit, come down now with your mighty power into the depths of our hearts. Gladden there with your brightness every dark retreat and enrich all with the dew of your abundant comfort. Kindle our hearts with holy favor that the increase of our prayers and praises may ever go up to you, our God, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. It's a very Trinitarian prayer. The recognition of the Holy Spirit as God, the, the Holy Counselor, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, praises unto God, Christ our Lord. Very Trinitarian prayer. All prayer should be directed to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible allows for prayer to one or 
all three. The Nicene Creed, that great Christian creed of the church, defended the deity and the worship of God. Right? This is a third century uh, creed of the church. It says, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Both worshipped and glorified. The church, the early church and the church today, we have a deep conviction about uh, the worship of our God as one God that eternally exists in three persons. And so when we think about our own prayer life, um, when we have conversations with, with one another, when we go into to worship together in the sanctuary there, we want to give thought to the reality that God is, is triune. And you can pray to the Spirit. In fact, uh, because the Spirit is God, you're commanded to pray, right? We're commanded to give adoration and praise and glory to the Holy Spirit. Uh, prayer is part of our worship as Christians. Through prayer, we express our worship and adoration to God. Prayer also expresses our personal need. When we think about our worship to our triune God, Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, thinking back to our last Sunday school term on the study of the Holy Spirit through Sinclair Ferguson, his book, which was helpful. He said that prayer in the Spirit is conformity to the word which God has spoken. Prayer in the Spirit is conformity to the word which God has spoken. So we can have thoughts about prayer in the Spirit as well. And I just... Again, my own theological tradition in uh, church history, where I had thoughts about what, what prayer in the spirit looks like. Um, it's, it's constantly before um, the altar at church and uh, prayer in that way, or uh, maybe speaking in tongues in that way. And this is prayer in the spirit. Um, and I think sometimes we can um, unnecessarily overly spiritualize it in a carnal way. Um, but scripture is clear that we ought to pray God's promises back to him. We're going to look at a few verses that, that teach us that. Praying in the spirit is prayer that conforms to the will of the purpose of the spirit. The will of the purpose of the spirit. The purpose and will of the spirit is not different from the purpose and will of the father and the son. Right? Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, is a book that will be extremely helpful for you um, if you're able to, to pick it up. It, it will help you so much in your own times of prayer. Uh, so his method is exactly as his book title says, Praying the Bible. He says we should be praying the words of Scripture, praying the words of the Bible. And he outlines verses in the Psalms and other places in Scripture that teaches Christians how they can pray through those verses and how we can pray for one another. He says, um, or I'll, I'll read Ephesians uh, 1, 17 to 21. Actually, I'm going to have somebody read that for us. Go to Ephesians 1, and you should have that in your handout. But if not, go to Ephesians 1, and let's read verses 17 to 21. Now, think about this. This is a, this is a prayer, right? So when, you, when we struggle with, what should I pray? Sometimes we go to prayer, and it's like, okay, well, 
where do I start? Who do I pray for? What do I say? Um, sometimes we find ourselves saying the same thing over and over. I, I deal with that too. I, I struggle with that. Um, but this is a prayer. This is a place we can go to in scripture and read it as prayer, right? We, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can just read Ephesians 1, 17 to 21 as prayer. Let me have someone read that for us. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is Pauline prayer. That's a spirit-inspired prayer, right? Write it down, note it. Ephesians 1, when I'm struggling with prayer. What can I say? God, I pray that. <laughs> the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and pray it, right? Uh, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, is another prayer by Paul. We can open up our Bibles to these verses and pray them straight from Scripture. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. Let me have someone uh, pray that for us. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts in faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and may be filled with all the of God. Thank you. It's been said that um, God puts into our mouths uh, his own words when we pray scripture. Yep. Right? We can read God's word back to him, his promises back to him. You have a, I don't know, a friend, family member, a person that's struggling in some, some area. Um, I'll pray for you. You say, I'm going to pray for you tonight. I do, I've done that, and I get home and I forget. <laughs> but having something like this in mind, I mean, we may struggle with what to pray for them. I don't know. He, it's, he's dealing with some financial stuff, but I also know that his heart is dealing with some stuff. Like, what does he need? Well, he needs scripture prayed for him or, or, or her. Um, other prayers we see in the New Testament, Romans 15, 5 to 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying that for our sister churches, praying that for ourselves as a community of believers here locally. All right, Norm? Yeah. Not only that, it's oftentimes if you give yourself time, other verses will come to mind and you branch out. So there is a never-ending mm. uh, nuclear explosion, so to speak, of using scripture. It, it's, it's, it's a power lifter. Yeah. To your point that if, if I pray on my own, I, I get very distracted. 
distracted or I pray the same old, same old all the time. Yeah. But praying the scripture, the word is life. It generates something. There's a warm energy yeah. that comes yep. through it. And there is yep. a this morning. When we prayed Psalm 23, I mean, there was much more I could have prayed out of that because it was just like bubbling up. Yeah, so yeah. Praying the Bible is that's a great point. I think sometimes when we think about prayer, we can think that um, extemporaneous um, is the most sincere form of prayer. And I get up and I just pray out of my heart. Um, I pray extemporaneously. We all do. Um, but praying out of our hearts is not always <laughs> what we want to do. <laughs> sometimes your heart is just jacked up and you don't need to be praying out of your heart. <laughs> you need to be praying out of a place that's informed with, with scripture and our hearts ought to be informed with scripture. I, I feel like, like praying scripture, um, even looking, opening up and it can feel dry sometimes, but it doesn't have to. We can open up and say, and just pray it um, and pray that God would give us a sincere heart as we do. But praying scripture is like, like your children, like you teach them things, but they end up just talking like you, right? They're around the house with you. They hear you. They'll, they'll use language that you use. Say it in the way you say it. And it's just, it, it bleeds into them by constant hearing. Uh, praying scripture does that for our prayers. It, it informs how we think to where our minds, our hearts are saturated to where we start to pray. And we, we, don't, we don't have our Bibles open anymore. And our prayers sound like Ephesians 3 or Ephesians yeah. 1 or just has elements of it in there. That's, that, that's a good thing. It's, it's cultivating a heart of, of prayer. Uh, Romans fifteen thirteen another prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. William Gurnall said that uh, the spirit excites and assists. He excites and assists the believer in his prayers. He said to pray aright, it is necessary we pray by the Spirit of God. Just as we cannot come to the Father through any mediator but the Lord Jesus Christ, so to pray by another spirit than by the Holy Ghost, he says, is sheer folly. If praying in the Spirit is prayer for our conformity to the Word and will of God, which he's spoken to us, what better place to go than to the scriptures to learn how to pray, to inform our prayer, the Lord's prayer even. Um, we can hear these things and the, the Lord's prayers on t-shirts and on earrings and on you know, Christmas ornaments and everywhere. And we, it's, it becomes a thing, like, oh, it's the Lord's prayer. But he's, he's teaching us, he's teaching his disciples how to pray. So we ought to pray the Lord's prayer, we can. And ought to see what the Lord's prayer is pointing us to. Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May God be regarded as holy. And one day he will be regarded as holy. When Christ returns and the whole earth becomes the dwelling place of God, he will be regarded as holy. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, so may the Lord, the Spirit, help us in our prayer life, in our communion with God as we think about worship. Uh, may the scriptures inform how we think. We want to be Trinitarian Christians, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worthy of praise, honor, adoration, and glory. Well, on that note, let me pray for us, and then I'll close out. 
<laughs> I, got, I got to find a text for that. It's pressure. <laughs> Our Lord, we give you thanks for your kindness to us. And as we've just seen in your word, uh, we do want to honor you in prayer. So Lord, may you, God, fill us with hope and with joy and peace and trust in you so that we would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May you give us endurance and encouragement by your spirit and unify us together as we follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To you, Lord, be glory, honor, power, dominion, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Amen.